Welcome back to the Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. We've got a shorter episode this week as we answer a few of our listener mailbag questions. We'll be off next week for the 4th of July, and then we'll return the following week with some brand new episodes. We're pumped about our upcoming episodes. We'll do one in the Purple Martin, one in the Great Horned Owl, which will be our first full episode on an owl. We'll also have an episode on a common bird that many of you see every day, the cardinal. We'll cover a number of topics, including some cool things that you probably didn't know about cardinals. We're also discussing the super interesting oil bird. Oil birds are nocturnal and live in caves in South America. Similar to bats, they use echolocation to navigate throughout the air. These aren't the only similarities with bats, so make sure to listen to hear more. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be down next week for the 4th of July. If you're looking to hear more from us, though, John was featured on an episode of Ologies with Allie Ward. We'll post a link to that episode in our Instagram next week. Make sure to check it out. Okay, now let's get into these listener mailbag questions. So this one is from Ann and Jim in Sanibel Island, Florida. They said, we have red knots that travel through Sanibel every year on their migration. They have such a long migration, so it's always exciting to see them. Do they always return to the same spot each year on their migration path? If they stop in Sanibel one year, will the same bird typically come back to Sanibel the following year? So the quick answer there is sort of, and probably yes, if they're you know if things go the way, you know, migration is such a tough thing in the sense of weather conditions can can be dictate various things. But I think the quick answer is once they find places, that's one of the reasons why staging areas are so important. So for instance, on the East Coast, north of there, knot migration and, and some of the other species are, are tied to the horseshoe crabs breeding. Uh-huh. And so there's a ton of food. And you know, so there are reasons why they stop in these places. And once mm-hmm. they find good places, they'll come back to them. I mean, it just makes it makes sense for birds that are moving that far to, to find landmarks. Now they may grew up sometimes and not make it, but no, they definitely will. will and their try populations to do that. again are declining because mm-hmm. of uh, horseshoe crab populations. Not there not being enough of them for them. So okay. their populations are declining as well. So you're not going to pass up when migration is such an energetically costly thing. You're not going to costly thing. You're not going to pass up a place where in the past you know you've gotten. You've been able to restock mm-hmm. in that. I mean, it's incredible migration when you think of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so where do the the knots travel from then? I mean, they have one of the red knots have one of the longest migration patterns. Is that correct? Or? Yeah, they're going yeah. down to the to southern South America and oh. breeding up in in the Arctic and and wow. um, you know. But but I was going to give another example within individuals where we just happen to know something, which is Monty and Rose, these two piping plovers that were breeding together at Montrose, well, that's a small enough population bird that people know where they winter. And Monty and Rose wintered in different places, but they went back to those different places year after year. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's a those are, yeah, really interesting things that, that you can begin to learn once you have the capacity to follow these birds. Or in, in the case of some species that the population is small enough that you can actually hope to figure out where individuals might be on the breeding grounds versus the wintering grounds. I think technology will let us know a lot more about these birds and how they move. Um, 
because we'll get trackers that can be put on them that you know can beam their location without that are small enough that even small birds can be uh, monitored and I think that's really critically important for understanding movements and for charting differences so mm-hmm. we're going to change the landscape and warm the place up what does that do to the way birds move and the only way to know that is to be able to track them mm-hmm. and that's true and and yet at the same time I always try to emphasize the fact that sample size is really important and so one of the values of putting a bunch of bird bands on birds in situations where you may not even see them again is that eventually you can get a lot of data because you put a lot of bands on things. And so the what tracking... the bands have trackers in them someday? Well, mm-hmm. I mean, then, then we'll get a lot of data. There's yeah. no doubt about it. No, it's yeah. true. Yeah. It's true. The technology is, is amazing with respect this to This is that. the one place where I'm a glass, glass half full person and John <laughs> is not <laughs> as much of a... <laughs> I just, I just think we want to be careful about what one individual bird does relative to the right, whole Right, but if we could band 50 <laughs> or 100, yeah, uh, absolutely. that's that's completely different, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. And that if it if the trackers are small enough, then that's more and inexpensive enough then that's feasible. Yeah. If they can beam to satellites in the sky and not have to use radio towers that you have to put up every 20 kilometers. Yeah. But how close are we from having that become oh, a reality? We're not very not, not very. Well, close. so I, I think that's a that's a another glasses half full thing because the truth of the matter is we didn't have these kinds of things ten years, fifteen mm-hmm. years ago. So mm-hmm. where's it going to be in ten or fifteen years? Well, I think there's. I mean. Obviously, there are physical limits associated with batteries and things in terms of how small you can get. But but at the same time, solar panels on them. I I think what we've been what what's been possible just over the last several decades in terms it was is almost unimaginable in terms Mm -hmm. of what people can can do in terms of getting data on bird movements this way. It's really fun if there are places online where you could just do a Google search and you can see birds that have been tracked and you can see the map of where they go while their tracking devices are on them and mm. you know it's really fun to to look at at those maps yeah wow, cool and then shannon what you just said reminded me i wanted to ask john with monty and rose were they a couple mm-hmm. so they wintered at different places they did, yeah so they they met up and <laughs> they met up in was in wisconsin i think it, oh. is is the hypothesis and then ended up moving down to Chicago and setting up shop on at Montrose and and I don't know I mean again those are those are a whole nother, that's a whole nother aspect of biology that you can start looking into when you have trackers on things is those kinds of questions where for instance with red knots I have no idea whether pairs move together or 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 not. Or not. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sorry about that. Good it was a good one. That's good. I liked it. It took me a while to get it. No. I, I'm, a, I'm big into puns. So. Yeah, you got it right away. R- yeah. RJ's a dad joke master. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, here's another question. This is from Rob from Indianapolis. Um, he says, the collection of bird specimen at the Field Museum is so interesting. Are there any birds in particular that you are hoping to add to the collection? What would be your unicorn to add to the collection? Oh, man. Well, you know, there's so many ways in which we can 
continue to make the collection more valuable. I mean, the, the, my favorite example is this work we just did in Bermuda, where we wanted to get modern specimens of European goldfinches for Bermuda because we can get genomic data for this for Louise Bott, our graduate student, to look at all these different questions. And we were able to get permission from the Bermuda government in collaboration with, with folks there that allowed us to do that. And, and gosh, you know, there's just so much that goes into that these days that, that any little thing like that to me is, is just really important for the collection and really important not just for the collection itself. You know, that's the other thing is I always like to emphasize that the Field Museum is part of a network of collections across the country and across the world. And and one of the things that we need to do is continue to support the network of networks that's out there in terms of making regional collections as important as collections of the Field Museum, in part because they are. And, and uh, yeah, so I just... But, I think but, every bird's a unicorn. Actually, mm-hmm. just like everybody in this room is different, every human is different, every bird is different, mm-hmm. and so um, so each one tells part of the story of its species, and I think that that's really that's how I like to look at it. And as far as unicorns go, in the in the sense that it's mean in in that, I think we always go into the field with a note with a, a knowledge of what we have and what we don't have, mm-hmm. and we always come back from field trips and we unpack things because there's a big party when we unpack things. It's a lot of fun to look at that and speculate on what things are. And sometimes you go in the field and you have things you didn't know that were different or you knew they were different, but you don't have enough tools to figure out what they are until you have a comparative uh, material that comes from a collection. So you just you can't think that something is just mundane (laughs) or not important because you just never know. But having collections and series of them across geography and through time is what helps us tell the story of a changing earth and we need to be invested in in things like that. Yeah. Birds are often used as indicators of environmental health and um, you know they can only tell those stories and be contributing if there are specimens that are in museums for people to look at, mm-hmm. not pictures, right. not just site records, all those things are important, mm-hmm. but there have to be actual specimens documenting um, what's there. It's only through those specimens we'll know about changing genetics through time, things like that. Yeah. Need the specimens in museums, yeah. network database so that they can contribute to science all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of our birds were put in our collections before we knew what the structure of DNA was. Nobody knew that, you know, we were going to snip little toe pads of a extinct Carolina parakeet and sample their whole genome. But that's what we do now. So and we don't but we don't know what the next revolution is. Yeah. Birds see an ultraviolet light. We wouldn't know that without all these specimens and with the technology that lets us put a spectrophotometer on and see that birds not only see an ultraviolet light but they have ultraviolet patches. So and there's so you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. But right. I do know that the specimens will pe- be part of what happens into the future. Mm-hmm. Can I ask John one question? For sure. So I just want to know, the just getting down to the nitty-gritty, when you were talking about the Bermuda trip, is it red tape to actually, like, shoot 
a bird that is or collect difficult birds, to collect. Yeah. Or even to collect blood samples. Oh, I mean, okay. Yeah, you have to, yeah we, we, we have to adhere by all kinds of... It's a lot easier with introduced birds. <laughs> yeah, people, people are a little <laughs> less worried about European goldfinches and house sparrows and starlings. But, yeah, you know, we go through, a, a, yeah, and, and, and it's, a, it's a big part of, of what we do these days. And, and there are national laws, there are international laws, um, and we follow all those rules and regulations and, and stay up on the changes that happen to them. And then, you know, there's this big issue or question legitimately about, you know, what's coming back to the country that you're working in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's another aspect of, of everything we do is we want to try to build relationships that are based on mutual benefit. And and that's a, a becoming an international requirement under these international agreements like the Nagoya uh, protocols and things. Um, and from my perspective, that's the best thing for, for birds. You know, coming back to this idea of a network of networks, I would love to see there be more people in every country in the world who have the capacity to go out and study and monitor and and protect birds over time, which includes building collections to help monitor how these, as Shannon was saying, these changes are happening. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you know, so it's, it's every place is a little different. And uh, you've, it's all about interacting with the, the expertise that is in a given country and, and following the rules and, and, uh, and, and, and building partnerships. I mean, it's, you know, that's the, that's, it's a, it, and it's, that's actually fun, in my opinion. I mean, it's, a, it's great to see people like in Bermuda who care so deeply about the, the birds that they have around them, which, which they absolutely do. And so, you know, I think Louise is very interested in going back, and, and I absolutely hope she does because I think there's a lot of neat questions that could be asked. When you look at our Pritzker lab, the DNA lab at the Field Museum, we've trained more than 400 people in the last 10 years from 35 countries. So those are legacies, yes. right? Just like the specimens that get put in the collections are legacies, and that those things transform the world, and those are the things that will save birds. Um, and that takes dedication, connections, and caring about not just the earth, but about people too. That's awesome. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's probably a good place to stop for this episode. Um, anybody have anything they want to add to wrap it up? Nope. Get out. Go birding. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to wish everyone a safe and happy 4th of July. Check out our Instagram, Birds of a Feather podcast, next week for a link when our host, John Bates, is on an episode of Ologies with Allie Ward. We'll be back with new episodes the week after the 4th. Cheers and happy fourth from John, Shannon, Amanda, and myself. <laughs>